of my fellow Astorians, welcome to the Christmas edition of History of Westeros podcast. A little slow on this Christmas. <laughs> yeah, winter my, is no longer coming. It yeah, my here. shirt is a lie. Winter is absolutely here. I guess there's a few of you out there that live in extremely warm places, but even those warm places are probably a little less warm right now. Feels like the coldest Christmas we've had in a while. It's also, I think the, I don't think we've done a stream on Christmas before. If we have, it's been quite some time, so long that I don't recall. But yeah, things look a little different today. If you're watching, at least, you can see that I'm not wearing headphones. That's because we don't have any Sean's today. Not one Sean. Not a single Sean. We are Seanless. That's a lot of lost presents, but it is Christmas, so you understand that he's doing family stuff. So we understand that. That's cool. But we'll keep it going. We have things to talk about. We have a great topic today that's very much on point, very much right in line with that Christmas spirit. And we still have our regular contributors. A lot of you all here are live. Maybe we'll send some questions in and add to the discussion. And of course, our top contributor, our invaluable good Queen Alley, that's Nina. Latest post on her blog is talking about the High Septon and Poor Fellows and the inclusion of women. And while the Faith of the Seven is very patriarchal, like most of Westeros, there is a couple of interesting things about it that make it less so from its conception and more so from just how it's run. And what I mean by that, what she means by that, is taking note of who the deities are. God in, say, the Western Christian sense is male in the traditional sense. Not, not everybody sees it that way, but that's just typically how it's presented. But in Westeros, the seven are not. The seven is seven aspects of one God, and those aspects are equally feminine and masculine with the mother, the maiden, and the crone, the father, the warrior, and the smith. So, and the stranger, of course, is genderless. So that's kind of, yeah, so th this all fits into that discussion. It's a good one. Check it out, goodqueenalley.tumblr.com for that and lots of other great content from Nina. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode was voted on by patrons. It beat it out the life, beat it out. <laughs> it beat out the life of Harwin, the Basilisk Isles, and House Valarian. That's House Valarian of Driftmark, not House Valarian of wherever else they could be. No, there is only one House Valarian. You can participate in the votes by joining us on Patreon. You can get bonus episodes and other content as well by joining us on Patreon or on Spotify with the subscription. We often start with a trivia question today will be no different. And this question is on theme. 
It's customary to bring offerings to the Dosh Kaleen, who are the crones of the Mother of Mountains and the Dothraki culture, the ex-Khaleesi, after their call husband has died. What three items are usually given? I'll give a small clue, because that's pretty obscure. They all start with the same letter. Let's describe the topic today. One of the best ways to express this concept outside of George R. R. Martin's creations is the 2021 Dune movie. It said so succinctly, Beast Raban, played by Dave Bautista, rages and asks his uncle, the Baron Harkonnen, played by Stellan Skarsgård, why the Emperor gave Dune to Duke Atreides, which had been theirs for so long. Baron thinks briefly before saying, when is a gift not a gift? Yeah. Dune is the only planet in the known universe with spice melange, and without it, there is no space travel, nor no oracular visions, and lots of other things. It's quite the substance. It's the most powerful substance in the world, uh, in the universe, on the, thus making that the most powerful planet, Dune itself. But it's also a trap. This whole thing is a setup for the Duke of Trades. In fact, gifts that are meant to kill or undermine the recipient in some way are a recurring feature of the Dune novels. That there's almost there's one in almost every one of the books that I've read. I haven't read all of them, but I've read most of them. Anyway, the plot and fate of Duke Atreides has quite a bit in common with Ned Stark's story. In both cases, no one is really fooled into thinking it's a gift, but they kind of think they have to do it. They have to accept, even though they know it's dangerous, even though they know it's kind of a setup. In both cases, they don't realize just how much of a setup it is, just how dangerous it is. They've, they've gone in over their head. Hand of the King is the second most powerful position in the kingdom. And though Robert isn't intentionally trapping Ned, he's not like, ha ha, I'm going to go trick my best friend into coming. He has kind of trapped him unintentionally. He's basically, Robert's kind of trapped himself and he (laughs) ropes Ned in with him. So that's a good example of that. Ned didn't even see it as a gift, but a lot of people would. It's an honor in the Seven Kingdoms to be named Hand of the King. And a lot of these families, they view honors as something above gift, something more valuable, more precious especially when it's something that raises the esteem of your house that much. Hand of the King. I mean, not many houses can say they've ever had a Hand of the King come from their house. So even though Ned didn't want it, you can see why there were all these other factors that led him to accept. By the way, we really need Stellan Skarsgård in a Game of Thrones show of some kind. It could be House of the Dragon. It could be one of the other shows that comes out. He's just done so many great films and shows, but he just did Dune and Star Wars and or in like a year or a year and a half. I mean, wow, that's... It was just and Star Wars, not and or Star Wars. And or Star Wars. <laughs> nice. Got me. I mean, he's been Pirates of the Caribbean. He was in Thor, all the Thor movies, right? This guy has been an actor since 1968. I looked it up. Of course I did. So yeah, we need him and we need to get him on our squad too. <laughs> Perhaps one of the most obvious we can point to in A Song of Ice and Fire, getting back to that, is the repeated, repeated? repeated phrase... Euron's gifts are poisoned. Think of a Piet Pri. Piet Pri, yeah. <laughs> Euron's gifts are Piet, yeah. None of them have been literally poisoned, the gifts themselves, though we do have a section on literal poison gifts in this episode today. A few Euron-centric examples just to get us set up, like gifting Victorian's men with lands that he knows they can't hold. A perfect example of an offer they just can't bring themselves to turn down even though it's complete suicide. They're not going to be able to hold castles in the reach for the long term. Come on. But they just can't help themselves. Like, land, titles, oh, I must have it. The dragon horn, I mean, that's a pretty straightforward example, even though 
<laughs> what's going to happen with it is not so straightforward. We do know that it's probably toxic, poison, dangerous <laughs> in multiple ways, really. The Dusky Woman as well, even though he was more worried about Maester Kerwin, who he's now killed. He's worried about them both, or maybe should be worried about them both, but he was clearly more worried about the Maester. Even though the Maester, well, the Maester came from the Citadel, <laughs> Dusky Woman came, well, we don't know where she came from. She came from Euron, and well, I don't know about you all, but I'd have been more worried about her. At this point, though, we'll just see what happens. But Euron's gifts are awesome because we're not the target of them and because he makes the story so interesting and he does such a great job of <laughs> embracing this concept and providing us a variety of examples. So we're going to include poisoned prizes as well. There's a difference between a prize and a gift. Really, it's just one's given to you, the other is claimed. But they, in both cases, for our purposes today, they work out terribly. In both cases, the object of value delivers a negative return. The gift or prize is a vehicle for suffering or death or just bad things, usually for the seeker of the prize or receiver of the gift. But sometimes innocents are roped in or sometimes innocents are the only victims. So we'll cover some of those cases as well. There are a variety of ways in which this can be interpreted. It is a broad, wide open topic in a lot of ways. There's more examples in the books, shows, and other places that we could possibly cover. So, as usual, we take a little bit of extra benefit from having live viewers and folks who send us ideas in advance. Hit us with your favorite ideas of poison gifts, poison prizes, things that blew up in the wielder's faces, things like that. One of the more common ways to express this is the ancient concept of a white elephant. We've talked about the white elephants before. It's a gift that impoverishes its owner. Maybe not poisonous, but I think poisonous works because it's something that weakens the bearer. It doesn't kill you, but it, maybe it kills your money. <laughs> it kills your finances. I love to refer to the Simpsons episode where Bart gets an elephant because this is exactly what happens. They can't afford the elephant. It's also just a problem for other reasons. And then, of course, they kind of did a similar version for Lisa when she got a horse. They couldn't afford the horse either. But it's the same concept. They, it's a gift that you have to pay too much to, to keep. And thus, it's the gift that keeps on taking <laughs> rather than the gift that keeps on giving. Very much the opposite. There's a real simple example from the real world that comes up a lot. It's debt. Predatory lending. It doesn't even have to be predatory lending, but that's an example that really hits the mark for this. Now, lending isn't presented as a gift necessarily, but it's sometimes the way people sell it. It's like, this will take care of all your problems. Get some money now and you'll be fine. It's presented as a boon, right? It's presented as fair or it's presented as a good deal when a lot of times it is not. Especially if it's predatory, then it's the opposite of a good deal. It's meant to harm you. The term house poor comes to mind. That's not necessarily this. That's not necessarily a case of predatory lending, but it could be if your house loan was of that ilk. Car notes as well can, can bring you down if they're more than you can afford. So you all understand this concept. It's a good place to start because it's, it's one that, that fits in the real world. Harrenhal is a good one getting back into Westeros. Harrenhal too expensive to maintain. As we pointed out a few times, it isn't necessarily that way though. If you're rich enough, you can upkeep Harrenhal. The problem is most of the owners of Harrenhal weren't rich enough and the setup of Harrenhal 
by the kings that rule over it is to keep it that way. They don't want anyone having enough money to fully bring it to its maximum potential because then that would make it a threat to them. Whatever king sits the Iron Throne doesn't want a fully functional Hall like the Death Star. That thing's operational. No, keep that thing from being operational. Keep it at half power, at half state, not full power. Half power they can handle, full power, that's a threat. Now, that, of course, doesn't just apply to Hall. There's a lot of castles out there, houses with insufficient income to pay for their castle. Castles, think of the concept of being house poor, times that by 100 or, or even more, maybe, and you've got castles. Castle poor. The Westerlings were castle poor when Rob Stark came and knocking and ended up marrying Jane Westerling. Good example. We talked about how at the time when we covered Volantis and Valaridus, they literally have white elephants all over the place as means of conveyance for the wealthy. And at the time, we discussed how that's a very heavy symbolism. Without rehashing all that, one of the simplest ways to express that is their entire culture is weighed down by the way it's managed by having slavery, by having three-fifths or four-fifths of the population be slaves, and the wealthy folk just kind of sit back and manage their slaves. It's a stagnant society. And so much about Volantis shows that. Nina says, this may also somewhat be the case with Castamir being given to Rolf Spicer. Rolf Spicer gets Castamir after the Red Wedding for his family's participation. While it's difficult to say the total value of the Castamir lordship, and there are gold mines in the region, the Spicers would at the very least have to invest in building a whole new keep since the halls and keeps above were put to the torch by Tywin, and the original underground keep was obviously flooded also by Tywin. And Tywin could, could benefit from this, but it can't really hurt him. You could say, well, couldn't House Rain rise again? And that, that was a threat to the Lannisters once. Why not again? Well, I don't think so. There's almost no way Castamere could ever become as powerful as it was in the time of the Reigns. Their, their gold mines are tapped out or mostly tapped out, so they could never get to that level again. And even at that level, they were really only a threat to the Lannisters like one time in, what, 8,000 years? So it's not like they were a recurring problem that they were finally done with. No, it was a, they were a good second most powerful vassal to have on their side. It was only because of the very unique circumstances with both the reigns and with who the Lord Lannister was at the time, or the heir at the time, and then Lord, when, in Tywin's case. With different circumstances, never gone that way. But it did, and now things, time has passed, and, well, the Lannisters could make use of a new Lord of Castamere to have on their side, since they'll never be as powerful as they were before. That'd be another vassal to have, another one to raise troops, another one to get a small amount of taxes from. So Tywin can't really lose there if Rolf Spicer recovers the land and turns it into something productive. And if he fails, if it's just too expensive, if it's just like, look, man, this, these tunnels are too flooded. I can't possibly afford to get all this working again. Well, that's not Tywin's problem, is it? It was just sitting there doing nothing. So this isn't necessarily poisoned, but it is like taking on someone with a lot. It's like marrying someone with a lot of debt. <laughs> <laughs> except in this case, I suppose they could get, get out of it more easily. But what would they get out of it too? Going back to being landless? So surely there's something he can do with that land. And we'll work our, as we work our way through these, we're getting to more and more dangerous prizes, things that are more and more poisoned. I think about Harrenhal. Littlefinger understood what he was doing by accepting Harrenhal without accepting the castle. Other lords accepted the title and the castle, tried to manage it, and it kind of took them down with it. <laughs> it's like they went down with the ship. Littlefinger's like, I don't care about the castle. 
I just want people to know or think of me as Lord of Harrenhal, to have that prestige. He doesn't care about the land itself so much as he cares about being on equal footing with all these other nobles that have looked down on him so long and that he's now worthy of being their equal or marrying someone from their family. We know which person in particular he's thinking of, but point stands either way. There's a lot of similar cases like this. And another good example here is sometimes the prize itself is poison based on who has it. Littlefinger being the master coin was great for him. He's unethical. He's corrupt enough to exploit it to its maximum. Someone like Tywin looks at the office of master of coin and says, I don't care about ethics. I don't care about corruption as long as it's not too much. He wants results. If the results are good, it doesn't really matter how you got there, unless it's going to blow up later. He cares about results and continuing results. In other words, competence matters more to him than ethics for someone like Tywin. So he doesn't really care that much how Littlefinger got the coffers flowing again. As long as it doesn't blow up in his face later, which it might. Well, not Tywin's face. (laughs) It might blow up in someone else's face later. So this is why it was a bit of a poison prize to give it to Tyrion, because Tyrion's not corrupt. He might exploit it somewhat, but not to the level they would. He's not going to make himself rich from it. And Littlefinger also left it in a state that made it difficult, made it an entangled mess. So yes, it's this honored, prestigious position that you can enrich yourself from if you're a Littlefinger, but if you're a Tyrion, it's handcuffs. It is a bit of a poison prize in that sense. And Tywin doesn't see it that way. Tywin would say, well, why won't you just... There's all this opportunity here, man. Like, why why are you being held up by your ethics? (laughs) Tywin legitimately was perplexed by Tyrion not wanting to do this job. He really didn't understand. I think some people think that he was being like, why don't you get it? While actually understanding that he was diminishing him. I think Tywin actually thought it was, well, look, man, you can enrich yourself with this. So kind of the same way Tywin was confused when he offered him... Sansa. He's like, you can marry Sansa and be the Lord of Winterfell. He's like, I don't get why you don't want this. (laughs) And well, it probably would have been a poison prize for Tyrion to accept Winterfell because he wouldn't be able to hold it. Like, Theon is unable to hold Winterfell, was unable to hold Winterfell. How the Boltons will probably be unable to hold Winterfell. It's poison because of there's a lot of angry Northerners out there that want to come kill you and give it back to the Starks. Nina points out in a similar way, Jaehaerys gave Reyna Dragonstone without actually providing the value of Dragonstone that she truly cared about. Meaning, he let her live there, but he didn't name her heir. He didn't say it would pass to her children. He said, you hold the island and the castle by my gift, not by right. So in other words, it's the kind of gift that can be taken away, which kind of makes it not a gift, right? <laughs> so it's kind of some legalese there. He wasn't really giving it to her. He was like, I gift you the right to live here, not the castle itself. So yeah, that's, that's, very, that's a hugely important distinction because one can be taken away. The other, well, the other could still be taken away because he's the king with a huge dragon, but it wouldn't be as legal. That would be crappy for him to do. To be fair, he didn't. She eventually left on her own because she became depressed living in Dragonstone after what had happened with her husband and her friends and all that. So understandably, she didn't want to stick around the place had negative memories for her. So it became poisoned based on her experiences there. So in its own way, let's get back to Euron. Let's get a little more specific. Here's a quote. Victorian had expected the crow's eye to give the lordships to his own creatures, Stonehand and the Red Oarsmen and left-hand Lucas Cod. A king must needs be open-handed, he tried to tell himself. 
but another voice whispered, Euron's gifts are poison. When he turned it over in his head, he saw it plain. The knight was the reader's chosen heir, and Andric the unsmiling, the strong right arm of Dunstan Drum. Volmark is a callow boy, but he has Black Heron's blood in him through his mother and the barber. The barber was Victorian's best man, his best fighter. And Newt, the barber, seems wary. When his name is called, he's like, what? And he's like, you're going to be the lord of, well, I forget which of the shield islands he gets. It doesn't really matter. And he cannot resist. Victorian's like, refuse. Tell him no. And Newt's like, are you crazy? Are you going to give me a castle? But what did we just say? This is a death sentence. And he can't see it. He can't help himself. Even Victorian figured it out. <laughs> I mean, come on. This guy is really the least bright POV we've read, probably by far. And he figured this out like pretty quickly when thinking about it. Victorian, the least intelligent person in the room, is completely right. He's like, don't accept. Newt's like, are you mad? He's like, no, I'm the sane one. It's kind of like saying, here's a silver chalice. Take a drink. He's like, hey, wait, don't drink from that. It's poisoned. It's like, yeah, but silver. <laughs> That's really what's happening here. But that goes to show, I mean, Euron is an expert at offering people things they cannot turn down. They can't resist, even if it is suicidal. Playing on their, playing on society's edges, the things that society tells people they have to risk, things that they have to take on, things dangerous they, they'd be crazy to not accept. But really, they are crazy to accept them. I mean, this is a death sentence. Newt the Barber isn't dead yet, I don't think. But I mean, we know Euron completely abandoned the Shield Islands. He has no intention of holding them or trying to hold them. The idea that these four ironborn new lords can hold back the reach. Come on, no chance. <laughs> I mean, no chance at all. Perfect example of the opposite extreme here. When, when it's a castle making you poor, well, I mean, you might find a way to make more money later. But in this scenario, you're gonna die. There's no later. <laughs> There's no later to be like, well, I'll I'll find a way to get thousands of men to defend this castle and the Reach will just let me keep it. They'll be like, you know what? We'll just leave those Ironborn alone. No chance whatsoever. I guess it's the opposite of Brienne, right? Brienne, no chance, no choice. When she did it, it was for good. It was for something we would praise her for. But in this case, I mean, you've got people that they're so greedy. They're so lusting after power that they just walk right like a lemming. They just walk right off that cliff. And you get it, though. It doesn't seem like, yeah, no, people do that. It doesn't seem unrealistic. Yeah, people do stupid things like this all the time. You offer them something that is really bad for them and they can't help themselves. Like everyone's a drug addict and you're offering them the drug they're addicted to. Something like that. They just It's just something about addiction and, and things that we desire, that we've always wanted. Just can't say no to them, no matter how dangerous they are. It's a strange thing, people. <laughs> Humans, we are. Yep, yep. A concept that comes up very early in the story and sticks around, but is perhaps most prominent very early in the books because it, the early books deal with children the most or young people or naive people. Careful what you wish for. A concept we've raised before. Things that you wanted that are bad for you probably always were bad for you. You just didn't realize it. Like Sansa wanting to be married to the prince. You know, if Joffrey had been one of the rare good ones... Well, this would have been a fairy tale, I suppose. They get married, live happily ever after. That's when you get a, a good husband or prince or whatever, princess. 
in real life terms, you can be naive and get lucky, but you might not. It's kind of random, right? But even being married to a good prince, even if he had turned out good, even Joffrey's a good person, it still might not have been the life she imagined. It still might not have come out the way she wanted. It still might have been all it's cracked up to be. It still might have been the way she imagined it when reading the fairy tales. It might come out different. Shift over to Danny. Danny was told that the Iron Throne belonged to them. It's not a gift. It's a prize, but something that was taken from them. Something that was belonged to them. Her life's quest is to win this back. We point out right away when we did our reread, it's, it's a pretty toxic quest. Is this, is this good for you? Do you want to be queen? How many times have we talked about how dangerous it is to be king or queen? It's not a good thing in a lot of ways. One of our sections in the episode today is called To King Crown Them Is To Kill Them. There's a lot of examples of that, whether it's Marcella, Young Griff, Rob Stark. Might happen to Danny too. In winning the throne, she may speed up her own death, even if it's for a good cause, even if she saves Westeros from eternal winter, the pursuing the throne part of that isn't necessarily necessary. And she didn't start her quest saying, I'm going to save Westeros from the White Walker. She started off with her brother's poisoned belief that they need to win back what was taken from them. Arya accidentally wished for her own death. That was funny when she's like, oh, I, I hope your princess dies. And she says that to Elmar Frey. And Elmar was actually going to marry her. <laughs> that one's just funny, of course. That, that one's not meant to be foreshadowing. It's just a little tongue-in-cheek joke for the very, very attentive reader. Yeah, because it's not like we think Arya's going to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we don't. We don't. That's not we foreshadowing. We don't, yeah. Yeah, really, really, really don't. The Mystery Knight had a dragon egg as a prize in the tourney. But behind the scenes, they were engineering a winner. So it was the prize itself wasn't poisoned. The pursuit of it was. In other words, if you were doing well in the tournament, they might mess you up to keep <laughs> you from winning because they had a particular winner in mind and they were making sure it went that way. Nina says the dragon itself was also likely a big reason as to why Bloodraven decided to spy on the tourney in the first place. It caught his eye. It's like, what are they doing? Dragon's egg? That's quite the prize. It, it's a little peculiar and that got him to dig deeper and uncover everything else. Maybe. Maybe he would have figured it out anyway. But if it weren't for the other factors, the dragon egg was a big red flag. Literally red in this case. Blood red dragon egg. The idea that a marriage between two relatively unspecial Riverlands houses would require a dragon's egg as a gift. It, yeah, it just all stood out. like a, Again, like a red flag, like a sore thumb, like Rudolph's red nose. Pick your metaphor. Alicent thought Laris would be a valuable friend. His services were almost a gift at first, but oh, did that backfire. He's becoming more and more of a liability the more things go on. And what about Otto gifting her his own daughter with the, the crown? He said to her, well, I steered you towards the crown. Wouldn't you, what else could you have wanted? And she says, a great line. How am I supposed to know? You told me what I wanted. You basically made me want this. I don't know if this is what I would have really wanted. You steered me towards this as a child when I was very open to suggestion. As an adult, she's not sure if it's what she wanted, but it's too late. It's too late to give it back. It's too late to say, I don't want this. She's queen now. There's no going back on that. That seems quite poison because, I mean, she can't even, like I said, she can't even process whether... She would have even wanted it. Her whole idea of what is good 
and bad for her personally vis-a-vis the crown and the throne has been completely spoiled for her because she knows she's been lied to. She had much, much older men telling her all these different things, which as she's getting older, realizes a lot of these things weren't true, were they? Would Rhaenyra have like, this whole bit about her family being murdered if, if she allows Rhaenyra to take the throne? That's something we keep coming back to. Is that really true? Where did Otto get that precedent from? What other Targaryen murdered all their family? Magor didn't kill his own family when he took the throne. He only took the throne when they tried to take it back, or killed, killed them when they tried to take it back from him. And even then, he, for as bad as he was, he didn't go around slaughtering them. He tried to make them accept him, as bad as he was. So even Magor the Cruel didn't do what Otto accused Rhaenyra and Daemon of planning to do. And then he tried to do it himself, <laughs> ordered the King's Guard to do it. So yeah, that throws it all off. So that just messes with Allison's head and makes her wonder, like, what was this all for? What really is the danger here? Did I really want this? And she has no perspective or anything else to compare it to. Like, well, what would her life be like if she had just been a mother in Old Town instead, to married to someone who wasn't the king? She has no idea. She can't compare herself to that person who doesn't exist. She can maybe look around and see other ladies that had lives like that and say, okay, maybe my life would be like this. And maybe she would prefer that. Maybe she would see the lack of danger for her children and for herself and say, yeah, I would much, this would be a better gift. This lower station would actually be safer for her. That would be a real gift, a non-poisoned gift. Let's talk about the, the concept of a, the gift of a hand grenade or a ticking time bomb, something that's going to blow up in your face that you aren't aware of. Here's a quote. A faint smile touched Roose Bolton's lips. You are a perilous prize, sir. You sow dissension wherever you go, even here in my happy house of Harrenhal. His voice was a whisker above a whisper. And in River Run as well, it seems. Jamie thinks he's talking about the curse of Heron the Black at first, thinks he's being superstitious, but <laughs> Roose is talking about the curse of Tywin Lannister. Interestingly, this whole scene is something unique. Argo Hote sees what's happening and is losing control and seeks to devalue the prize of Jamie. He is a perilous prize, has to be handled carefully, has to be, well, handed back over to Tywin, which is what Ruse does. But first, his hand is removed, Jamie's hand, and that devalues his prize, his level of like what you would get in ransom, what his value to the Lannisters. Tywin still wants him. He's still his son. He's still, in Tywin's mind, the heir to Casterly Rock, even though Jamie disagrees with that and wants to stay in the Kingsguard. He's no longer a huge military asset without his right hand. He's no longer capable of leading men from the front. He doesn't have that reckless courage that men love to follow. He can't do that anymore. And Hote knew he wasn't going to get to keep Jamie. He wasn't going to get to get the value of that gift for himself. So he devalued him for Roos to also make sure Roos didn't switch sides, make sure Roos took the blame for Jamie for what happened there. He didn't want Roos and Tywin getting friendly. He wanted to make sure having switched sides himself, the person he just switched sides to didn't then in turn switch sides to the side he was just on, which would be terrible for him. So that would have angered Tywin. So he's like, look, if I cut Jamie's hand off, Roos is going to be blamed for it because I work for Roos. Roos explains all this to Jamie and thus to us readers at the time. And through that conversation where he's like, I'm not really scared of your dad, but 
be your dad. But Jamie's like, but you'd like to be his friend, wouldn't you? And it's like, it has its benefits. So that was what that scene was about in a lot of ways was Roos trying to detox the gift, to, to remove the poison from the situation so that he doesn't get Tywin as an, especially with the Red Wedding in the balance with being planned behind the scenes at this point. It may have already been, that train may have already started rolling. Obviously, it hadn't gotten to the station yet, but this is a Storm of Swords we're talking about where the Red Wedding happens. Arguably, Danny's dragon eggs could fit into this category. Certainly, Illyrio and Varys did not see this coming. They did not expect the dragon eggs to literally explode and bring forth dragons. That was not what they saw coming. They are pivoting their plan to make it work out. But having her emerge and become this leader, definitely not what they planned. And for her, it might blow up in her face because, yeah, she'll perhaps wind up saving humanity, which is the one of the best lives lived you can imagine, saving everyone else. But for her on a personal level, it's going to enable her toxic quests, enable her to reclaim the Iron Throne, which isn't really something she should do, I think, on a personal level. I think it's good for her. And it will probably accelerate her death. So that maybe that's a little indirect. But none of this happens without the dragons. None of it at all, right? She stays with Khal Drogo. Who knows what kind of story it would be if the dragon eggs never hatched. It certainly goes a much different direction, right? Certainly for her anyway. There's a little more irony from the subplot of the Jamie Roos subplot, and this is, a, this is to do with Brienne. Here's another quote. Sir Jamie will continue on to King's Landing. I said nothing about you, I fear. It would be unconscionable for me to deprive Lord Hargo of both his prizes. The Lord of the Dreadfort reached out to pick another prune. Were I you, my lady, I should worry less about Starks and rather more about Sapphires. It's Sapphire. Sapphire, yes, Sapphire. <laughs> it's terrifying what's about to happen to Brienne there. He's being left with one of the worst characters we've ever encountered, one of the cruelest. But talk about a poison prize. Brienne is the poison prize. He asks too much for ransom for her, gets refused. He tries instead to assault her like a dummy, like he puts himself in a room alone with her and she bites his ear off. She gets released anyway, thanks to Jamie, comes back who himself is dubbed a perilous prize. He puts himself in harm's way and they can't have him die on their watch. So they have to kill the bear and pull him out, right? He plays it really smoothly, really smartly. Hote ends up with an infected ear and it basically results in his death. His men abandon him. Gregor Clegane comes, takes the castle, cuts his arms and legs off. Yeah, <laughs> a, a batch of poison prizes for Hote. He took... He would fit in right really well with Euron's men or one of the ones given the Shield Island here. This is that concept blown out of proportion big time because it's not just one of the Shield Islands, which is a place that you could maybe see holding that in under different circumstances if Euron was going to help and they were going to send their fleet there. But a sellsword holding Harrenhal <laughs> in the middle of the country? Yeah, that's never going to happen. Never, never going to happen. So really, all three of those things were too big for him. <laughs> he bit off more than he could chew, no pun intended, from his ear being bitten off. He bit off the enmity of Tywin. He bit off the curse of Hall. all the versions of that, both the metaphorical and the like, how are you going to afford this, man? And the prize he claimed in Brienne infected him, and that infection went to his head. Literally, <laughs> the infection spread to his brain, and he went mad. 
Yeah, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy, huh? So not always do the poison gifts hit people that don't deserve it. So mm, really, we may not have a better example of someone who deserves it than him. But another example of a gift meant to diminish someone would be, again, including Jamie, going back much farther in his history when Ares gave him the white cloak. Many, many people would look on this as a huge honor. Jamie did. Jamie thought it was a huge honor himself. He loved it. He thought it was great. There were some more things wrapped up in it, like he thought it would enable him to be near Cersei. He thought other things as well. But yeah, but and he didn't see what was going on between his father and the king at the time. He, he was too young to have noticed that or to fully understand it. And he was, what, 16 years old. He didn't understand that being stripped of Casterly Rock was such a big deal. Even now, he doesn't care about that. But to Tywin, it was a huge deal. And Nina writes, Tywin would lose his golden heir forever and would look dumb to Hoster Tully while the two of them were working on betrothal negotiations between Jamie and Lysa. Yes, it undermined that, too. He had plans on who he was going to marry Jamie too. However, what Ares had not realized was that he would now have by his side for the rest of his life, not just Tywin's son, but a young and idealistic knight. In giving Jamie a white cloak, Ares had directly empowered the person who could and would make the choice to stop him when he conceived the total annihilation of King's Landing. You're right. This must have been part of what made it also frustrating for Tywin. Ares was too stupid to see how he was shooting his own foot to spite Tywin. He never would have done it if he could see the own threat to himself. This is a paranoid guy that didn't realize he was arming Tywin's son and sticking him right behind him at all times. It's lose-lose. <laughs> this isn't win-win. This isn't win-lose. This isn't high win you lose. No, Ares just sank them both with this. and He ended up dead because of it. it. I mean, it went as badly as possible. And Tywin's chosen heir is still in the Kingsguard. So Tywin didn't come out of that well either. Another good example, Ned's mercy to Cersei. Yes, a little rhyming going on there. Nina says, which, to be fair, didn't entirely change events. Cersei had already set in motion the plot to kill Robert. Absolutely true. Rather, whilst what this conversation did was confirm to Cersei that Ned would never accept Joffrey as king following the assassination. Yeah, that is very true. It was still a bad idea. <laughs> the, the, mer the poison in this case was Ned poisoning himself by giving mercy to Cersei there, Cersei's children. For one thing, she was never going to accept it. Another thing, he was giving her a chance to strike back at him, which, as Nina points out, she was already striking at Robert. This confirmed that Ned was definitely an enemy, which she probably knew that anyway, but she knew just how big of an enemy, how dangerous of an enemy, and how certain and thorough that whole thing is. Now, let's think about another way this comes up, the seeking of Ned and the opening scene of chapter one, not counting the prologue, the direwolves. There's this old concept of don't bring a, a lion into your household. Don't bring a wolf into your door, right? Well, George obviously turned that trope around because the direwolves were pretty much the best thing for those kids in terms of keeping them safe. They are protectors. Obviously, they can't protect them from everything, as we've seen, but they did a great job at that. Ned was a little worried about that. Of course, to Ned's credit, like a, a good father, once he changed his mind, once he saw the logic or the superstition <laughs> behind keeping the direwolves, he fully embraced it. But he also told them it was their responsibility. He was like, this is not a present. This is not something you can just give up on later. This is a responsibility. 
because it could be poison, right? If they weren't, if they're not treated properly, yeah, that is dangerous. You have a wild, vicious animal in your house that's not trained properly. That could be extremely dangerous. Your large animals need to be well managed or they will cause lots of problems. True for people as well. <laughs> Let's think about a recent example from House of the Dragon slash Fire and Blood. Kristen Cole, good example. Maybe <laughs> take a little more care into who you bring into your household, who you bring close to you, who you gift with that white cloak. Seemingly the way it was presented on the show is let's let Rhaenyra pick <laughs> the gift of choice here. Well, that didn't work out, did it? It didn't work out for anyone. Well, maybe it worked out for Alicent in a really obscure, backwards, kind of twisty, turny way to get to that point. Theon as well. Ironically, going back to the Starks, they brought Theon in. He wasn't a prize because he's there's no profit in Theon. There's prevention of death. There's the negative expectation, the reversal of, of expectations from the Iron Wars. Like, well, as long as we have this kid, maybe they won't attack us anymore. So the, the benefit, the gain, is them not coming for you. But he obviously turned out to backfire pretty badly on them. He took what he learned about living there, took his familiarity, took what they gave him, and he turned that around on him. And that was how it was framed. What did Maester Lewin and others say to him? They said, look, the Starks, they didn't have to treat you well. They could have treated you badly. A lot of lords would have treated you worse. They let you, they raised you alongside the children. Yeah, well, that didn't work out, did it? But that's how it was expressed. That was the bitterness. That was what they threw in his face when they said, look, you were given this. This was a gift. You, a lot of people would have killed for that privilege. Yeah, you, maybe you were slighted. Maybe your honor isn't as what it could have been. But consider where you are versus everyone else, most other people. A more obscure example, Lord Bracken. Consider Lord Bracken, Jonas Bracken, the scene where Jamie comes in on him going at it with the camp follower, Hildy. There's a long-running theory that Hildy is a member of the Brotherhood Without Banners. To boost the idea of this theory, George out and out called her that in one of the Cushing Library manuscripts. Those are the finished versions. He had written other versions of these chapters that were not the final cuts, and so a lot of his notes and incomplete chapters are collected at the Cushing Library in Texas. And there's notes from Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons. And in some of those notes, yeah, Hildy is specifically said to be a spy for the Brotherhood of Banners. Whether she actually is in the main story now, whether that's a, a real thing or something George gave up on is a question. But I'd lean into, yes, she probably is, especially the way she talks to Jamie. She makes sure Jamie understands her name. She tries to get friendly with him. George gives her a lot of dialogue. So I would definitely suspect that she worked for the Brotherhood Without Banners. Now, how does this fit into our topic today? Well, oh, let me tell you. What does Bracken say to Jamie when he's describing her? He's like, oh, this girl, she's nobody. She's a, a prize of war, I claimed. He belonged, she had belonged, quote unquote, to one of the Blackwoods. And if you recall, they were, I think it was a Blackwood. Anyway, someone fighting on the Stark side. Remember, the Brackens flipped to the Lannister side after the Red Wedding, after the Lannister armies come to Riverrun and all that. So he, she's probably a spy, probably quite possibly part of the reason why Jamie was caught later. Obviously, Brienne had a bigger part with, involved in that. But they're all working in it, on it together, most likely. And so he took a lion into his household, a wolf into his household, 
thinking he was just taking some harmless camp follower or someone he could have fun with, and she's spying on him. There you go. Going back to the Ironborn, the tale of the Red Kraken. Similar story, but with a conclusion. We don't know where this Hildy Lord Bracken thing is going. Lord Bracken's probably not the final target. He's relatively small potatoes in terms of where things are going. But the Red Kraken was killed by one of his prizes of war. One of the many women he took and made a salt wife just up and cut his throat one night while he was asleep. Just like that. From his perspective, she was a prize of war, but there's nothing more poisonous in the prize category than, a, than one that literally kills you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about literally poison gifts here. One of the first examples, the probably most prominent first example comes from the Western or Eastern market, is it, when Danny almost drinks poison. Quote, Ser Jorah lifted a cup and sniffed at the wine, frowning. Sweet, isn't it? The wine cellar said, smiling. Can you smell the fruit, sir? The perfume of the arbor. Taste it, my lord, and tell me it isn't the finest, richest wine that's ever touched your tongue. Ser Jorah offered him the cum. Ser <laughs> <laughs> Jorah. No, Ser Jorah offered him the cup. You taste it first. Yeah. So very meaningful. Jorah figures out what's going on there. He's like, why are you so eager? What's going on here? Why didn't you want us to drink it in front of you? I know why now. Because it wasn't. Yeah, we know what's in there. What's that stuff floating in there? What did you do to this wine, man? (laughs) Jorah warns Drogo that this won't be the last time someone tries to take out Danny. He specifically says another poisoning is likely. It's it's a, a way to to assassinate someone that makes a lot of sense, especially when they're surrounded by Dothraki warriors. I mean, the frontal assault method is not the best way to try to deal with a colossar. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've seen that fail many times. Lots of nations have said no thanks to that. And if you recall, it's not terribly long before Jorah is proven correct on that front. Luckily, Arston Whitebeard is there to do what he's best at, guarding Royalty. Another quote. Mother of dragons. For you. He knelt and thrust a jewel box into her face. Danny took it almost by reflex. The box was carved woods, its mother of pearl lid inlaid with jasper and chalcedony. You are too generous. She opened it. Within was a glittering green scarab carved from onyx and emerald. Beautiful, she thought. This will help pay for our passage. As she reached inside the box, the man said, I am so sorry. But she hardly heard. The scarab unfolded with a hiss. Danny caught a glimpse of a malign black face, almost human, and an arched tail dripping venom. And then the box flew from her hand in pieces, turning end over end. One of the reasons this, that that first line is so important, meaning... Danny took it almost by reflex. Is that Danny is very used to receiving gifts. She's constantly getting gifts. Chapter one, she gets a gown for her, and then she's given to Drogo. So not only is she used to gifts, but she's used to this this process of gift giving. The Thraki don't right, they, they don't pay for things, they give and receive. In chapter two, she gets bride gifts, which again, more people <laughs> are given here as as human gifts. So much slavery, her given to Drogo, handmaids given to her. 
in the show, one of those handmaids turns out to be a poison gift too. Eroa turns on her and, and steals the dragons and all that. And again, as I said, the eggs are arguably a poison gift, although not intentionally so. Chapter three, she's decked out in gifts that she receives. Chapter four, she gives Viserys gifts and he sees them as poison because he's insulted. He's like, you're to dress me in Dothraki rags? So he, he's dishonored by this. Chapter five, he tries to steal the eggs to sell them and do army stuff with them. Chapter six, they go to the market and that's when there's the poisoned wine. She gets to Karth and Clash of Kings and it's just gifts, gifts, gifts. She's overwhelmed by gifts. Pyat Pri try to give her stuff in an attempt to steal her soul. Zaro tries to give her a bunch of gifts to con her into marrying her so she, he can claim one of her dragons using Karthine marriage traditions, right? What's fascinating about this to me and I hope I can impart to you, maybe you'll all will agree, is that most of these gifts individually aren't terribly poisonous. Well, except for the ones that were actually poisonous. <laughs> but as a whole, it's more the gifts in totality, the barrage of gifts that might be poisonous. Danny is just, you can't bribe Danny, right? She's hard to bribe, especially not with money. She's just, but this is part of why. <laughs> She's got so much. She's put on a pedestal constantly. She's constantly giving stuff like she's just like sitting there in Karth and someone gives her this beautiful brooch. She's like, oh, we can pay for passage with this. That's what she's thinking about. Like, I can sell this to get to Westeros. She's just used to people handing her priceless things just out of nowhere, right? That's her life. That's her existence. That's not necessarily healthy. That doesn't make it easy for her to like figure out what normal people are like, to put herself in the regular person's shoes. For what it's worth, as Nina put, points out, to Danny's credit, she gets rid of pretty much every gift she gets in Karth, really only keeping the dragon crown. Of course, a lot of these things are to pay for things. But yeah, she's not attached to them because of what they look like or because they make her look cool. No, they're means to an end for her. She sees I mean, them as monetary value and that money can, can be converted into progress. I mean, even when she gets that gift in the first place, her first thought. You're right. Instantly, she's like, I can sell this. this like, paper. <laughs> what a weird thing. Imagine getting a gift. You're like, ooh, think about all the things I can sell this for. Yeah, that is kind of funny to think about. Like on Christmas morning, like you're opening something and you're like, how much can I sell this for? Like your first thought is like, how much can I re, can I re-gift this? It's like, you're not thinking even for a second about how you could enjoy it or where it could go or this would look nice on my, this would look nice in the, in you know, on the, yeah, in the, <laughs> on the merchant shelf after I sell it to them. <laughs> it'll look nice converted into a bag of gold. <laughs> I think As, I mean, there's been comedy shows too where people are like, oh, get me things for places where I can exchange. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. Like, don't get me store something credit. I want, yeah. Don't engrave it. Don't put my name on it. Yeah, don't on. engrave it. Yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Gift certificates. Yes, that sounds good. <laughs> something with a robust exchange program. Yeah. So, Danny is a different story in that regard because her existence is so different and it's hard to put yourselves in just as I was saying, it's hard to put yourself in her shoes and, and or it's hard to, for her to put herself in, in a normal person's shoes. It's hard for us to put ourselves in her shoes, her little pointed slippers that Tyrion talks about. <laughs> yeah. Hard to imagine what that's like just being handed priceless objects just because people want to, because they worship you. I mean, she's an object of worship in part. I mean, she's, she's a miracle worker. Quite literally. Mother of dragons. Not every day you see that. Nina also writes, the, the chalice given by the Tyrells to Joffrey on the morning of his wedding is also soon to be literally poison gift. One of the reasons they made it so, so fancy and so, so big was to make sure the plan worked. They wanted to make sure it, it was deep 
so that it would hold a lot of wine because that would help make sure Joffrey was drunk, which would help ensure he's not paying attention to what's going on, make it a lot easier to drop the poison in there. And because it's so fancy and big and gaudy, he's sure to want to show it off during his wedding. And they were right. They predicted him. He's a simple person, Joffrey is. He's predictable in a lot of ways. They knew what he would go for. They knew he would like the fanciness. They knew he would drink deep. And boy, did they do that. Boy, did it work out. In part two, because, well, Joffrey's dad, his, the one he thought was his dad, meaning Robert, not Jamie, also a big drinker. And yeah. Oh, and also Nina points out, because it's the same height as Tywin, or rather Tyrion, the Tyrells could rely on Joffrey probably making the comparison, comparing the, the chalice's height to Tyrion and, and making calling him his cupbearer and knowing that it's going to be hard for him to, to haul that big old cup around. And yeah. Which in turn allows them to pin it all on Tyrion. The cup itself may have played a larger role than y'all realized in the plot and making sure the different moving parts moved smoothly. Okay, let's, uh, let's take a little break here and answer a few questions and get some words from our sponsor. We have Niels Rain. The Danish word for poison is gift. What? Really? And then I added that that's true in Norwegian as well. But it also is a, tra- you can also translate it to married. You could say gift and it could mean you're married or it could be a poison. Wow. Yeah. For How gift, it that? would be to be poisoned. Yeah. Anyways, but yeah, it's true in Danish and Norwegian. So that's a good call, y'all. Okay. Yeah. Mag Stewart says an appointment under the Kingsguard to strip a family of its heir or a marriage into the Targaryen family. Yeah. Okay. We, we talked about the Kingsguard one, especially Jamie. There's probably other examples besides Jamie. Certainly Barristan didn't think of it as toxic. He had a cousin that took the lands over from him. But I bet the woman Barrison was going to marry, whose name we don't even know, because he had a betrothal. I imagine she saw it as not so great. <laughs> Maybe she was happy for him. Like, oh, my, I was going to marry him, and now he's going to be in the King's Guard. Maybe she married that cousin. <laughs> yeah, maybe she still became the Lord of... of the lady. The lady, right. Maybe she may still married the Lord of... of, of Haystack with corn. What? Haystack Hall. Right? Yeah. Haystack, Haystack Hall. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Haystack Hall. Yeah. And uh, yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. Maybe that's what happened. Like like how Ned ended up marrying Catelyn. Yeah. When Brandon died. That is often what happens. But maybe that guy was already married. Maybe she just kind of got screwed out of it. She no, would be like. That's not Haystack Hall. That's, that's House Arrow. My bad. Harvest Hall. Harvest Hall. It was yeah, close. It was, it was yeah, Harvest, I was like, Haystack. correct to say it was Hall, but yeah. not the Haystack. Yeah. It's because they have wheat too. So of course, it's like a Haystack. That's why you thought that. Right on, right on. Uh, and a marriage into the Targaryen family, yeah, that can be a real problematic because you're not a Targaryen, and so you might be not part of that crew, right? You're not, you don't have that special blood, that special look that so many of them have, and just being part of the royal family. We've seen in the real world, sometimes being married to the royal family can come with all sorts of baggage and all sorts of, you get put in the news, you get talked about a lot. <laughs> It may devolve into war. You may find yourself in a civil war. <laughs> a couple of Targaryen civil wars have happened. Yeah. Yeah. It may not be the price of being in the center of the spotlight, the equivalent of Westerosi tabloids, but it's worse in a lot of ways because better in some ways because there's no internet, but worse in some ways because of the threat of war and all that or poisoning or something like that. Yeah. I mean, 
might have been happier farther away from the throne. Viserys won the, the Great Council. He won the vote. He didn't see it as a gift to his own credit. And Patty Considine, we talked about last week, he said, yeah, his character probably would have been happier, certainly would have been happier not being king. He didn't see it as a gift. It was part of what made him a better king than a lot of them is he didn't see it as a gift. He didn't see it as a way to enrich himself. He didn't see it as a way, as a thing to abuse, which he believed his brother would. His brother would have seen it maybe as a gift. Damon would have treated it like that and, that, and the realm would have been worse for it. Terra Incognita says, Sansa's new dress turned out to be for her forced marriage. Yeah, good point, good point. The dress itself symbolized her being forced to marry Tyrion. She thought it was a great thing. She got really excited about it. She was like, yay. Uh, but she didn't realize who she was going to be forced to marry. She didn't realize it was going to be that day. It was all just happened so quickly. Us readers, too, probably didn't. And we may have realized that she was getting excited over something she shouldn't. But we also probably didn't realize it was going to happen right that minute in that chapter. Book Nerd says, does Sansa's hairnet count as a poison gift? Yeah, <laughs> it's a literally poison gift. The poison wasn't for her. But yeah, I mean, that was literally poisoned. There was a black amethyst from Ashai inside the hairnet. So I'd say that definitely counts, book nerd. Good call, good call. She was the unwitting courier for it, which is a kind of an interesting side version of this, interesting tweak or mutation of this concept. Because we talked about that before, how the gift itself is seen as a positive, but it turns out to be dangerous or negative or to turn a negative profit Usually that's the gift itself, but Sansa is the courier this time. She's carrying the poison while carrying the poison in a piece of jewelry. It's kind of a multi-level poisoned gift there. <laughs> Graham Highlander. What a great name, Graham Highlander. And if you were talking about words that mean things in other languages, brawn means gift in very old classical Gaelic. Brawn with two ends. Really? Huh. Wow, the the lang the translations are really uh, coming up big today. We got brawn, we got gift, get gifts for Danish and, and Norwegian. That's pretty cool. Well, folks, if you know some other translations, hit us with those as well. That's that's good stuff. That's definitely uh, something that I'm almost never going to catch is things in other languages. I only speak English. I don't know other languages at all. You don't speak Pig Latin? <laughs> Not fluently. Not okay. fluently. No, I, I struggle with Pig Latin. Do you? Yeah, I, I thought I'd maybe try hog Latin instead. <laughs> no good at that, that either. Harder. Yeah, hog Latin is harder. I thought it would be easier, but more fool me. <laughs> a word from our sponsor, Smile Brilliant. When I was younger, I had a lot of orthodontic care. My mother, who's in the room, hi, mom. It's Christmas after all, is well familiar with this story. I started off on what was called an activator, which is this big, glob of plastic that pulls your jaw forward. Then I had what was called a Frankel device, which made my cheeks puff out really big. Then I had braces with rubber bands, without rubber bands, with other stuff. Then, of course, the retainers. I didn't wear my retainers as much as I should. I have a little bit of crowding in the bottom of my teeth, my lower jaw, and one of my teeth in particular, which is got crowded out by the rest, is darker than the rest. So I definitely, <laughs> when Smile Brilliant came to us, to be a sponsor, I got pretty excited because, yeah, I'm a little subconscious about that one tooth, and I'm looking forward to getting my impressions back from them. I sent it off, and of course, it's the holidays, so it'll take a little longer for it to come back, as usual, but according to them, it's usually a pretty quick process, 
And I'm looking forward to getting that installed and, and seeing the change to my smile. So if you're like me, you have maybe were hesitant to try some of the variations of teeth whitening out there because they, they all, a lot of them seem kind of scammy, just the way they're marketed, just something doesn't seem right about them. But this, after research, after looking into it, seems like the real deal. LED lights, like I've said before, accelerate the process, but don't actually make your teeth whiter. It just shortens the session. Strips miss things like, like I said, for my own teeth, a strip wouldn't work for me because it's just my teeth aren't even. And like we've also pointed out before, what happens when you make something that's brown half white, the other brown stands out even more. So you will need to be thorough or it can end up backfiring. Also, hydrogen peroxide are used in strips, and that creates greater tooth sensitivity as well, which you don't want. Who You don't want to sacrifice tooth health to make them whiter. That's not a good idea. Health should come before appearance, always. Charcoal is abrasive, wears down enamel, so don't do that. Whitening toothpaste, again, very short-term, also abrasive. Really, you want to want to go with things that dentists recommend not these fly-by-night businesses, not these surface-level changes. Smile Brilliant, over 10 years in the business, innovative lab-direct process rather than these other cheaper methods. And I mean cheap, not referring to price, but in terms of product and quality. So head over to smilebrilliant.com, get custom-fitted teeth whitening trays or night guards. It took me like 10 minutes to do the impressions, pop them in the bag, send them back. It was really, really easy super simple instructions. It was like three-part instructions. Super, super simple. No trouble at all. Couldn't, couldn't say enough about it. It was very simple. To save on a site-wide sale, use the code Westeros5. If there's already a site-wide sale, if there's not, use Westeros. Once again, that's Westeros5 or Westeros. One of those two codes will work. If there's already a site-wide sale, you'll be saving lots of money. If there isn't, you'll save a little extra. So get over to smilebrilliant.com. Use that code and enjoy those whiter teeth. We are also sponsored by our friends over at NordVPN. We've been going over a variety of different benefits to a VPN, things that protect you, things that save you a little money, things that save you a little speed, things that protect your information. Let me turn it around this time and say, what's the benefit to not having? What's the benefit to browsing with your information out there? What do you gain from that? Nothing. You gain nothing. You only gain the potential risk. I suppose you save a few dollars a month. (laughs) But for only a few dollars a month, is that really worth it? A few dollars for the price of a cup of coffee to save yourself from all those possible pitfalls of people stealing your information or slowing down your service via, what's it called? What's that word? (laughs) I'm totally spacing. Throttling. Yeah, throttling. See, my my brain is throttled. I can't think of the right (laughs) word. They do regular security audits on their servers. There are 5,000 servers in 65 countries, and it's super easy just to switch from one to another to change servers in a matter of a split second. So if one isn't perfect, just move over and find where you need to be. Really simple, really easy. And like I said, if it's not actually worthwhile, if it's not actually going to do any have any benefit for you personally, well, that's where the 30-day money-day back guarantee comes in. Huge discount if you go to nordvpn.com slash thrones, four additional months for free. Really, there's almost no risk. The risk is a few dollars. Like I said, a cup of coffees about all you're risking here. Might pay off really big. Give it a shot. See if it works out. If it doesn't, that's where the 30-day money back guarantee comes in. 
every platform, Windows, Android, iOS, macOS, Linux, Android TV supports NordVPN, which is how you can get around a lot of blackouts, things like that. Get over there. Once again, the site is nordvpn.com slash thrones. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right. Let's get back to our poisoned gifts. Those are good gifts to buy for someone or for yourself. But we are talking about the negative kind because that's what we talk about when we talk about Westeros. We don't have, they don't have like a gift giving holiday in Westeros, do they? They don't have like a, here's a, I mean, they do gifts for, for guest gifts and arriving and leaving and things like that. But there isn't like a, there isn't really a Christmas equivalent in Westeros, is there? Figures, figures. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about to crown him is to kill him. Here's a, another quote. This one is from Tyrion and Illyrio. What has this poor child done to you that you would wish her dead? Even a kinslayer is not required to slay all his kin, said Tyrion, wounded. Queen her, I said, not kill her. The cheesemonger spooned up cherries. In Volantis, they use a coin with a crown on one face and a death's head on the other. Yet, it is the same coin. To queen her is to kill her. One of the things we talked about a lot in House of the Dragon is how it seems like a lot of these characters, the closer they get to the center of power, the fewer options they have, not more. The more they become a slave to the power that they're trying to control, the more it controls them, the fewer choices they have. I mean, just go back to the example of Otto thinking he has to kill the other side of the family to, for his side of the family to survive. I don't know for sure. We don't know for sure if he sincerely believes that. But he certainly believes that it needs to be done to them, whether he truly believes they'll do it to, to his family or not. So it's almost like power itself is death to the wielder. It's like the sword without a hilt. It's a similar metaphor to queen her is to kill her. To crown him is to kill him. Anyone invested with this much power in a world in which so much power rests on individuals in a world where that power can be manipulated from people behind the scenes, in a world where killing that person changes where that power lies to a different person, one that you might have more control over, there's a lot of incentive to kill the person holding that power, depending on who you are, where you're sitting. So it's pretty easy to see why killing, crowning someone, is putting them under great threat, if not outright killing them. And in the case of a Marcella, it's more certain. In the case of someone more powerful, hmm, it's a risk rather than a certainty. I mean, when I first read a Game of Thrones, I didn't perceive how doomed Rob Stark was. Maybe if I'd been a more experienced reader, if I'd been a more savvy story understander, I would have gotten that back 25 years ago when I first read it, 22 years ago. <laughs> Or the same with Renly or, or Marcella or maybe even Shireen, who isn't crowned, but she's certainly attached the heir to a doomed person who, is, who isn't doomed yet. But I think to crown him is to kill him too. But in Stannis' case, it's 
doubly powerful because he's also been told he's the bearer of a great responsibility to all of humankind, that he's Azor High. More on that in a bit later, because that obviously applies to a few other people as well. To have a claim makes you a target. This is part of what someone was saying earlier about marrying into the Targaryen family. You don't get a claim to the throne by marrying into the Targaryen family, but your children do, and they become targets of anyone else who might think that they're a threat, that your children are a threat to their ability to wield power, might murder you. So this gift of royal blood might actually be the worst possible thing because it makes you a target for a paranoid ruler or someone who, or not a paranoid ruler, for an opportunistic person lower on the totem pole that wants to move up. You're in their way, so you must die. (laughs) If you didn't have that Targaryen blood, the power of not being a threat, right? You're just not in their way. They don't care. You are not worth being killed by them. That's a good thing. It might be demeaning to some people, especially in an environment like Westeros, to be too small to be of consideration. But you're going to still, you'll have the rest of your life (laughs) to feel demeaned, unlike the dead, the people who are killed for having their claims who aren't capable of having thoughts since dead. So it isn't just marking them, putting them in danger by exposing them to murderous, the murderousness of others who bear a lesser claim. It's also can be crushing to someone who isn't strong enough. There's been a lot of kings and queens who just weren't strong enough to bear the weight of that responsibility to not be able to handle that paranoia that comes with it. Cersei, she wants it, but she can't handle that paranoia. She's always thinking who's coming for her. She can't trust people. That's not going to work. That's a recipe for disaster. The second she hits the peak, she starts sliding back down it. And for someone like Daenerys, who can handle it, who isn't overwhelmed too much by the gifts and the power, well, she's overwhelmed in different ways. She's not blinded by greed, but she is blinded by what she thinks is right, potentially, that she thinks it's her job to do these things. Aegon II, bringing it back to uh, House of the Dragon, Fire and Blood Times. Pretty good example of someone who's not strong enough to bear the weight. What, does, what it'll do to him, whether um, he becomes a pancake or whether he balloons to bear the weight, <laughs> to hold you know, it up Aziz. and it starts to flop around <laughs> or pick your metaphor. Aziz. Yeah. Who is strong enough to bear the weight who in is? House of the Dragon Times? Cesaris Velaryon. He's very strong indeed. A very strong boy, I would say. I, I raise my cup to that strong boy. Uh, That's true. He is very Much strong. stronger than Aegon, too. Yeah, sure. Aegon couldn't even wield the we- the real Blackfire. That was a rubber, rubber Blackfire that he was holding above his head there. He's not bearing that weight. And of course, it's going to they don't see it as a gift either in this case, which is kind of a, a statement on what the crown really is. They see it as survival as much as they do thrival. <laughs> it's thriving and surviving is what they see it as. Allison and Otto and all that. And it's probably going to backfire on them. They've imp- invested power into someone that really shouldn't have this much power, someone that isn't capable, someone that doesn't have care, someone that doesn't have sympathy or empathy, someone who was very privileged and wasn't taught to see things another way. Yeah. I mean, there's all sorts of things that can and will go wrong here. And they did it to themselves. They put the crown on his head and to crown him is to kill him. 
to crown him is maybe to kill themselves, too, in this case, because this is going to have a big trickle-down effect, one might think. And Viserys, again, coming back to him, he acknowledged that the Iron Throne was the most dangerous seat in the realm. Not something to lust after, not something to take lightly, not something to enrich oneself. And that's not even including the, the leprosy thing you get from cutting yourself on it. They <laughs> Throw that in, and it's even more dangerous. But he wasn't even talking about that. He said that before he knew about that part. What about Damon Blackfire? Gifting him with Blackfire the sword. Talk about a poison gift for everyone. That, was a, that poison flooded the whole country. Damon and his family and the other half of the Targaryen family, the non-Blackfires, the, the red dragon side of this. Oof. That was poisonous. I mean, Aegon the Unworthy, this is a dude who knew a thing or two about long-lasting poisonous developments, poisonous relationships, poisonous decrees. Just this guy was just all poison, right? He knew it well. He was an expert. The best ever at poisonous gifts left for the realm. He left five generations of poisonous Blackfire rebellions. <laughs> that was his gift to the realm. <laughs> All his children that he made and invested with the power to continue fighting and to continue fighting for their claims many years later. Yeah. He also gifted the realm with the notion that being full Targaryen was better than half Targaryen despite the existing marriage laws. So really just the gifts of Aegon the Unworthy do keep on giving the toxic gifts. We had, of course, a whole episode, not just on him, but on many of the different figures of the Blackfire Rebellion, including Daron and Aegon and Daemon himself. So check those out if you haven't, or if it's been a while, maybe time to revisit them. Here's a good example where the title is hard to hold and because of ill will and because powerful competing claims exist, all the different things all at once making a prize poison. Your father should have granted us dairy. Cleos married one of the plowman's daughters, you will recall. His grieving widow is furious that her sons were not granted her lord father's lands. Gatehouse Amy is dairy only on her mother's side. My good daughter Jane is her aunt a full sister to Lady Maria. A younger sister, Jamie reminded her. And Ty will have River on, a greater prize than Derry. A poisoned prize. House Derry is extinguished in the male line. House Tully is not. That muttonhead Sarah Ryman put a noose round Edmure's neck, but will not hang him. And Rosalind Frey has a trout growing in her belly. My grandsons will never be secure in River Run so long as any Tully heir remains alive. She was not wrong, Jamie knew. If Rosalind has a girl... She can wed Ty, provided old Lord Walder will consent. Yes, I've thought of that. A boy is just as likely, though, and his little cock would cloud the issue. And if Sir Brynden should survive the siege, he might be inclined to claim River Run in his own name or in the name of young Robert Aaron. Right? There's just always some other claim out there. That's one of the things that comes with these entangling family relationships that go back for centuries, if not eons. Yeah, Robert Aaron has Tully blood. <laughs> like, there's just always more Tully blood out there. So this is what Jenna Lannister is saying. She's like, look, yeah, Ty is getting River Run, which if that were well set up, if that were well handled, that would be a great prize. River Run's a great castle. But it's the same thing we were talking about with Winterfell. There's thousands of rivermen who don't want 
this person to hold river to hold river and they wanted to go back to the tullies and if there's any tully out there whatsoever they'll get behind that person and not behind a lannister or a fray and yeah so it just it's stacked against all these things are stacked against like i said leading into this quote you have the t- it's hard to hold the title because there's people who want to kill you there's it's hard to hold it because everyone hates you and it's hard to hold it because there's people with strong claims that are out there th- who have incentive to come take it from you in part because of those first two reasons and they're like ooh look at that this guy's holding a very powerful castle and he's not holding it very strongly hmm let's take it from him that's westeros 101 right someone holding that much wealth and power they aren't holding it very tightly. They aren't holding it firmly. Someone's going to notice. Someone's going to come take it from them. That kind of stuff happens in the real world too. Or at least it would if people had castles. <laughs> but it happens on other things. It happens on other areas of existence and business owning. Nina has got a great take on this. She says, Jenna is hyper aware of the dynastic delicacy of the Riverrun situation, both because she is now its new lady and because she thinks in a very Lannister manner. She knows what Lannisters do. She sees... She's experienced with the cutting edge of underhanded intrigue. So she sees the possibilities. The gift of knowledge, again, is poisonous here because she knows all the different ways she could be screwed over. Some of them are kind of unlikely, but some of them are very likely, and she's very focused on those things. Ignorance wouldn't necessarily be better here, but there are times when knowing too much is bad, which we have dedicated a section to coming up a little later. Nina continues here. This explains her correct anxiety about the ability of her line to hold it. She knows that there are a number of better blood claims to River Run still extant. Even forgetting the imprisoned Lord Edmure and his unborn child claims that far exceed what she calls paper crown M and Frey. (laughs) What Jamie fails to realize in dismissing Robert Aaron's claim is that it doesn't matter what little Robert actually thinks about his late maternal grandfather's seat. Jamie's like, oh, Robert's not going to come all the way over here. It doesn't matter. That's Hosher Tully's grandson right? That's a better claim than the Lannister Frey marriage here. He and every other extant Tully are potential rallying points in a region which largely hates the Lannisters, especially in current times. Like, they're not big fans of the Lannisters historically, but the Red Wedding just happened. The Lannisters just ravaged the Riverlands with Gregor Clegane and Vargo Hode and the third guy. Yeah, Emery Lorch. And that's public knowledge. Everyone knows those were Tywin's men that he sent to just inflict horrible suffering on the Riverlands. What did he say? I want the Riverlands to burn from the God's eye to the Red Fork. And Kevin Lannister's like, you got it. Sometimes it's not so much a gift as it is self-inflicted. This gets more into the concept of prizes rather than gifts. Poison prize versus prize poison gift. Here's another quote. Y'all recognize this one. If only you'd had the good sense to raise the castle and carry the two little princelings back to Pike as hostages, you might have won the war in a stroke. You'd like that, wouldn't you? To see my prize reduced to ruins and ashes. Your prize will be the doom of you. Krakens rise from the sea, Theon, or did you forget that during your years among the wolves? Theon crowned himself, in other words. He put that to crown him as to kill him bit on him. It was a self-inflicted wound here. And paid the price even bigger than one might have imagined. The failure was so epic, in part because an even bigger villain came along to claim that same prize that he claimed with him still in it. 
But this goes much farther than that. There's a lot of poisoned prize back and forth going on in this whole subplot, perhaps as much as anywhere else. Right up there with the Euron stuff. Reek was a poisoned gift. And we have a tale of three Reeks here, and they're all a series of poisoned gifts. It starts with Roos believing he was cheated of his rights. The first night issue, he was cheated of that. There's a time when first night might even have been considered a gift because of the magical bloodlines of some of these ancient heroes. And just like the free folk of today still view a strong, capable, fast man as a more worthy father than someone who's just good and, and, and righteous because they care about survival. Survival is at the front of their minds. As I say, they don't have the luxury of things like that. It has to be survival is first. So we understand the notion for someone to choose survival over other considerations when survival is so close to their daily needs. So Roos, of course, the original idea of First Night was that it's a gift. Of course, it's not. If it ever was, it certainly isn't now. So he claimed this woman because of that, and Ramsey was born from it. Domeric saw this as a good thing. He was gifted with a brother. He always wanted a brother. Ramsey, Roos forbid Domeric becoming friends with him, happened anyway. Ramsey and the original Reek, Reek number one, become companions. Somewhere along the way, Ramsey poisons Domeric. The gift starts <laughs> paying off in negative fashion. Ramsey, of course, eventually betrays the original Reek to save himself when they're both captured. He puts on Reek's clothes and is like, hey, I'm just a serving man and thus becomes the poisoned prize for Theon to capture, then turns on him, and then Ramsay makes Theon into Reek, the third version of Reek, and claims him, and that, in turn, makes him into a poisoned prize for Ramsay, because Theon then turns on Ramsay by fleeing with Sansa, or not with Sansa, well, in the show with Sansa, with Jane Poole in the book, and probably going to end in even more betrayal. The gift of Ramsey, which will keep on giving, probably going to result in Roos being murdered by his own son, right? Multi-level poisoned gifts there. All the Reeks were givers of poison gifts. They were all turned into a giver of poison gifts by the person that wished to subjugate them. And the cycle continues. It's a very interesting, perhaps cutting version of the karmic cycle that plays out in all over the world and all over the life and different experiences. Garbage in, garbage out. Pain in, pain out. You put in negativity, you get out negativity. This is an extreme version of that. Torture begets awful people, begets more torturing and more awful people. The vicious cycle, writ large or writ small, written or writ in A Song of Ice and Fire and House of the Dragon and everything. Wow, that's a lot there. That Reek one really, really, well, it goes in circles, like I said. What about the pain of knowledge? What about the gift of knowledge when it's a negative thing? Well, the most obvious is one that's not from reality. It's prophecy. This is one that doesn't necessarily have as strong as a, of a real world connection. Certainly, there's things that are bad to know. There are things that you maybe wish you didn't know. Certainly, truths that you might be healthy or not knowing certain things that you may worry about that weigh on you day to day or week to week or every once in a while. That Think if about you, like medical news in particular. Sure. That's a good one for that. That's a great, uh, yeah, it's a great one. What if you had like a, what if you had a 1% chance of getting cancer that you didn't know you had? Like, yeah. Something that wasn't actionable. Like nothing you could do about it. Like wouldn't you just rather not know? 
Yeah, you probably would rather not know, but some personality types would rather know. Yeah. It just depends on the Yeah, it's, it's not so for, would, yeah. You know. it, it's definitely not a universal thing. We can't speak for everyone. Shay is right that it's depends on who you are, depends on the diagnosis, depends on whether it's actionable. If it's actionable, then you almost always want to know. Yeah, and because well, sometimes the, the actionable is not that you can act on it like and, and save yourself, but that you can act on it as in you can behave differently because you're like, oh, well, I'll only live 10 years, so I should not save my money for my retirement or something. Oh, yes. So that's a different sort of actionable, right? You're totally right. I didn't even think of it that way. You're totally right. That's a great example. Hmm. But that's why I could see that someone might want to know like, oh, I'm not like, I'm not likely to live long, so I shouldn't save money for retirement, even if they can't ever do any procedures on it at all. They still might want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Like Cersei learning of her future from Maggie the Frog. That was a definitive negative in her life. There is nothing good came from her knowing that she didn't save anything. She didn't prevent anything. It made things worse, I think. If any, I mean, yeah, like pretty definitively, I think. I mean, I think it's not... Ended not a girl's a, life. Not a controversial... Right? What's that? Ended a girl's life over it. Yeah, immediately, yeah. That's immediately true. ruined someone's life. That's very... It was an even more poisoned gift for her, yeah. <laughs> for uh, which girl was that? I forget her name. But uh, yeah, not not a good thing for her. Melora, right? Melora, yeah. Melora Har- Harden. No, not Melora Harden. That's, Harden. that's Jan from The Office. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I'm mixing up my favorite shows here and books. Well, The Office isn't a book, so I had to say show. <laughs> Melora, that's Jan. Melora, Melora Heatherspoon. Heatherspoon. It's Melora H. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Jan from that's The hilarious. Office. I was like, I know the name Melora Harden. Yeah, as soon as it came out, I was like, wait, that's not a Westeros house. That's, that's Jan. <laughs> yeah, Melora Heatherspoon. Heatherspoon, yes. <laughs> Danny frequently wonders about it, what she saw in the House of the Undying and what Quaith told her about the different sun's son and the mummer's dragon. She doesn't like, it hasn't necessarily been poisonous. I wouldn't say it's really like crushed Danny, like it's crushed Cersei, like it's been a constant thing she's paranoid about. But she thinks about it. She wonders about it. She's like, hmm. So for her, it's, it may yet be poisonous, but it may be helpful. But other things may come along. Like Danny's, there's a lot of prophecies out there that refer to her that she hasn't heard yet. So, and what happens when the prophecy is wrong? Just straight up wrong. Melisandre put not all that on Stannis. All sorts of consequences are happening for him because of that and other people. Collateral damage. Shireen, perhaps worst of all, will suffer because of this. False crowning of knowledge. This, this both bad prophecy and misinterpreted prophecy and yeah, all these things. So in Stannis' case, it's like to crown him is to kill him on steroids because he's not just being crowned. Being king is leading to his death probably, but being told he's the savior of mankind is also likely leading him to his doom. Certainly isn't helping him. Certainly isn't helping him. Might be helping Westeros though. I don't know. It's a lot to see how that goes. That plot line as we see not yet complete. So hmm, we'll have to hold, withhold judgment on some of that. But it's certainly not all truthful. <laughs> it's certainly causing some things to go wrong. Victorian, so back to him, coming from something besides Euron, he sees Makoro as a gift from the drowned god. But do you, dear reader, dear listener, believe that? Is Makoro a gift for Victorian from the drowned god? Mm-hmm. If you're not, if you're listening, you don't see me shaking my head back and forth. <laughs> like, no, no, he is not. I don't believe that, but it's neat that Victorian does because y'all know I'm fond of Victorian chapters, the way they're written and all. And yeah, he he sees this as a gift from the drowned god, as a but the pro- and the prophecies that he's dropping, the predictions are all coming true. 
but he's also leading him astray. You know, reading our coverage of Victorian chapters makes that clear. And if it wasn't already clear that Makoro is far more interested in Daenerys, who Victorian is trying to abscond with, capture and make a gift of to himself, stealing it from his brother. Makoro won't, doesn't want that to happen, clearly. So Victorian's being led astray here. Bran doesn't exactly seem to be on the way to happiness, does he? He may also be on his way to saving the world or helping to save the world or things along that line. But the skin changer gift, green seer gift, not associated with joy. The least happy child we've seen in all of A Song of Ice and Fire is probably Jojen Reed. And one of the reasons he's unhappy is he sees the future. It's messing with him bad. He's probably seen his own death, if not other things that are similarly horrible. Maybe he's seen the uh, other people's deaths and other awful things that... I mean, when he saw the vision of Winterfell being drowned by the sea, he didn't know what that meant. Bran didn't figure that out. None of them figured it out that it meant the Ironborn coming. Once you see that, you're like, oh yeah, that makes sense for that metaphor. Yeah, okay, that dream makes sense in retrospect. Even though he couldn't figure it out, he knew it was something terrible. He saw like drowned people in the yard. It was a terrible dream. It was a nightmare. Even though though he couldn't interpret it, like the ignorance wasn't helping him because he knew it was something terrible. Finding out what it was made it all worse, but it was still bad even without the full foreknowledge. Yeah, he was really dreaming of the shores of Winterfell. Yeah. (laughs) Ah, the shores of Winterfell. (laughs) What about Daron the Drunkard? The brother to Aemon and Egg and and them. He was clearly a miserable guy because of his dreams, because of his prophetic dreams that he drank to not have dreams, chase them away. Back to House of Dragon, Viserys himself chasing his dream. He believes it caused him to kill his own wife because of trying to make that dream come true. And then it came true a different way, a way that was not at all the way he interpreted it. And it certainly seems we'll see it with Helena as a as a featured thing as well, that she, even when she knows that something's coming, it just tortures her and she's just stressed about it. She doesn't really do it, can't do anything. Yeah, and that's such an interesting, she's such an interesting character because you, you get the sense that she's maybe got some issues, like, not, like some issues with her, the way her mind works that is abnormal. And... And I'm not even talking about the possibility that she's autistic because it seems like there's more than that going on. But it's almost like that's in part a blessing in disguise because if she was a quote-unquote normal human, She might be a a drunkard like Daron. It might depress her. It might actually help her deal with it, that she's not... I don't know. This is a character that hasn't been fully explored yet. There's more to come with her. And, well... Readers know that it's not going to be great in some ways, but the stuff with the prophecy Even readers is from the know book, that. It's, so we don't know. It's, it's Game of Thrones. It's also the dragon. It's yeah. far past. We know most most characters in the show are not going to have great endings, ultimately, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which brings us to our next topic. Sometimes death is a gift. Sometimes death is a boon. If you're suffering, if you're unhappy, if there's no hope, well, the gift of mercy. Here's another quote from the Waif. I was born the only child of an ancient house, my noble father's heir, the Waif replied. My mother died when I was little. I have no memory of her. When I was six, my father wed again. His new wife treated me kindly until she gave birth to a daughter of her own. Then it was her wish that I should die so her own blood might inherit my father's wealth. She should have sought the favor of the many-faced God, 
but she could not bear the sacrifice he would ask of her. Instead, she thought to poison me herself. It left me as you see me now, but I did not die. When the healers in the house of the red hands told my father what she had done, he came here and made sacrifice, offering up all his wealth and me. Him of many faces heard his prayer. I was brought to the temple to serve, and my father's wife received the gift. A lot of gift going on, gifting going on there. It sounds like her father gave her to the temple as part of his offering. Well, not sounds like it. It says that specifically, offering up all his wealth and me. And she in, in becomes a poison prize of sorts to the world, becoming a, an assassin in return for that. That's part of the outcome here. And of course, this is a familiar story in that we've seen plenty of examples of someone killing someone else to get the inheritance. That's something that happens in the real world too. It happens probably more prominently and more often in in the stories we see in Westeros and Essos because it's more of a winner-take-all scenario. The, The prizes are larger, the inheritances are larger when you're dealing with royalty and nobility and vast fortunes. By the way, another another call out to Andor. The waif was in Andor. <laughs> something like six or eight. Yeah, Faye Marseille. Yeah, something like eight actors, I think, from House of the Dragon or Game of Thrones are in Andor. It's a really, like really long uh, list. Guilty Undertaker says, the waif is basically Cinderella. She didn't marry the prince, at least according to her own story. There are Cinderella oh, wow. vibes there. Yeah, for sure. Right. That's a good point. That's a great point. Yeah. Nina writes, the Waif story is full of ironies, emphasizing just how little anyone but the faceless men gained out of the situation. In the end, the grand fortune of that, quote, ancient house the second wife might have hoped for for her daughter to inherit all but disappeared into the coffers of the faceless men. Only a third was left, less even than what the second marriage's daughter would have gotten had the inheritance been divided equally. No one wins. Part of what makes the whole thing so poisoned and toxic is it's a situation like, like with Ares and Tywin and Jamie, where Ares made this play that he thought was going to be a win for him, but really it just screwed everyone. It was just a lose-lose all around. That's pretty much what this story is here. Can I say so? No one came out a winner here. Nina says here, the daughter is in turn left precisely where the waif was, her father's only heir, perhaps too young to remember her own dead mother, right? Yeah. So the funny idea to me is the idea that the father gets married again. And then that girl has a stepmother that has a daughter. Just keep getting, like just a repeat, cycle. repeat, repeat. <laughs> yeah, until he's down to like a tiny, like a tenth of his wealth. <laughs> <laughs> well, how much do what little do I have to have? People stop killing over this. Look, it's yeah, not it's that like much. A, it's a real if you give a mouse a cookie thing. If you give a man a wife, she'll <laughs> have a daughter. And that, and that daughter will yeah. <laughs> make the wife want to kill your other daughter. Who won't make them? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And if you sacrifice that daughter, then that man will need a third wife. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Tyrion gives the gift of mercy to Nurse when uh, that whole thing, situation's falling apart and Yezanz Okegaz has the pale mare and is dying and was already dying of some other horrible disease he got from Sothorios. Tyrion gives his his boot mushrooms, the old boot shroom, tried and true method. And by the way, of course, the, the method, the poison prize was also used in a very unusual way much earlier in the book with Tyrion and those mushrooms. Remember what Tyrion kept those mushrooms in his boot in part after a conversation with Illyrio, where Illyrio basically told him the mushrooms were poison, but he was lying because he wanted to, to force Tyrion into realizing that, no, actually, you don't want to die. 
if you really wanted to die, because Tyrion was acting suicidal and like nothing mattered anymore. And, and Illyrio confronted him with his own beliefs by saying, look, if you really wanted to die, you would go ahead and eat these poison mushrooms. Of course, the mushrooms weren't poisoned. <laughs> Illyrio didn't actually want Tyrion to die, but he wanted to confront him with his own mortality and, and make him, well, jump or take a step back from the edge, but stop just standing there. Make a decision one way or another. Continue on with your life, keep living, or be done with it. And Danny gives Drogo the gift after begging for the magic that saved him. Drogo's life was a poisoned prize. That was a total poisoned prize. The return of Drogo to life. Because what is life when all you have is lost? All the things that made life worth living are gone. That was a very early ultimate expression of this concept, really darkly, but really succinctly from Mary Mazdur. Wow, I mean, that really hits you when Mary Mazdur tells her, oh, he's alive, but this goes to show what good is life when that's all you have is just a heartbeat and a pulse and your breathing. Because that's what happened to her, right? She lost everything that she cared about. The village she lived in, all the people she loved, all the people she cared about, that was taken from her. And, well, she becomes someone that wants to inflict that on, on a few others while still holding on to some of what made her good in the first place. That's uh, the poison of false hope there. And then, he then she had to turn around and give him the gift of mercy herself because of that. When she realized what Drogo's life had become, it wasn't a life worth living. So she took that away because it, it wasn't a gift. The gift of mercy was a better gift than the gift of restoring him to that particular state of life, which wasn't really life at all, only in name. Really, well, that's, that's powerful stuff there. Sandor begged for the gift of mercy, then cursed her for it. Remember, he asked Arya to finish him off. He was dying, he was in pain, and he saw it like a gift at that point because of his suffering was so intense that it would have, would have been a positive. Of course, as readers, we're probably happier that he's still alive. <laughs> Makes for a better story, probably. But remember how that came up. They had given mercy. She had been taught by Sandor how to give mercy to someone who was dying and in pain. They, they encountered that soldier who had an infected soldier, <laughs> infected shoulder, soldier with an infected shoulder, and pushed it through his heart to give it to him as painlessly as possible. There's the mercy men among the Dothraki, the Jacaran, who go around the battlefields with axes just finishing people off. That's the gift of mercy on a different scale. So this, this happens in a lot of different places, the gift of mercy. This isn't a poison to prize, but it's a, it's a gift when all else is lost, right? It's... It's the inversion of what would normally be a positive gift. It's the last thing you would want if everything else was going well. It's a gift that works only because of terrible circumstances. Now, here's another form. This is a little bit more character-oriented. It has nothing to do with being wounded physically, but a lot to do with wounded in your soul or your spirit. This one is a quote from The Sworn Sword. Aye, we were pardoned. So long as we bent the knee and gave him a hostage to ensure our future loyalty, Daron forgave the traitors and the rebels. His voice was bitter. I bought my head back with my daughter's life. Alisan was seven when they took her off to King's Landing and 20 when she died, a silent sister. I went to King's Landing once to see her and she would not even speak to me, her own father. A king's mercy is a poisoned gift. Daron Targaryen left me life but took my pride and dreams and honor. 
sounds a little bit like Drogo. He yeah. what what good is his life and his mind with everything else gone? My question is, did he try to speak to her before or after she was a silent sister? I think I think the implication is that he's bitter that she wouldn't talk even after taking her vows. Like she wouldn't yeah. break her vows for him. So it's a little unfair. <laughs> well, I mean, if she's a silent sister, I guess my point is that she wouldn't have been able to speak, but yeah. That's what I'm saying. Her yeah. vows kept her from speaking, yeah. Either way, he thinks he has nothing. He has nothing left. His his life is worthless. And of course, the story ends a little better than this. It has a, a rare semi-happy ending, at least a temporary happy ending, the Sworn Sword does. But you can see that this is a this is the kind of thing that happens. These men of pride, these men of honor, that is worth more to them than their lives a lot of times. What about Damon Targaryen and the Stepstones? Look at how he reacted to the gift of help from Viserys. I'm sending you ships and money. The dude almost runs off and commits suicide. <laughs> he, he reacted as if that letter was poisoned, the offer of help. Like, this, this message is, I'm reading poison here. <laughs> that face, that priceless face he made was him reading those toxic words that his brother wrote. On one, on one hand, it's a little silly, Damon. On the other hand, Viserys, have you really not learned your brother works this way? Like, he's been this way his whole life, <laughs> right? Like, you really could have seen that coming. Nina writes, in the case of Eustace Osgray, it would have almost been worth more to die on the Redgrass field or even being executed after than to survive and be pardoned. In dying, Eustace could have been a martyr for the Blackfire cause. That would have given his life more meaning, just as Damon's life was. Damon Blackfire, not Damon Targaryen. But in surviving and being pardoned, he had to go on living in a world which considered him literally a second-class citizen. He's the, a, a loser in, his, in the equivalent of being a living loser. He's on the losing side. His life represents that loss. He didn't die for the cause. That would have been honorable. So Nina writes, where everything he considered precious has either been destroyed or taken away from him. Yeah, it's very similar to the Mary Mazdor thing. Very similar. He doesn't feel like he has anything left, any reason to live. Death would be much better, but even dying at this point is not the escape it could be because it's not going to come on his terms. He can't commit suicide. There's no battle for him to go fight in. Even that opportunity isn't there for him. What about having a prize on your head? Isn't the term a price on your head? Yes, but I changed it slightly to fit our scheme here. <laughs> this is something I alluded to at the beginning. The example that comes... When you have collateral damage, right? Cersei offers a reward for Tyrion for bringing him back, for capturing him. But who suffers for that? Not really Tyrion so much. Tyrion's well protected. He's in Essos, protected by Illyrio. And then, well, he's all the way over in Slaver's Bay. Someone else has got him in chains. No one in Westeros even knows, or in Essos, is who knows about Cersei's reward is anywhere near there. Well, except for maybe Brown Ben Plum. But hey, th th he offered them a bigger reward. Anyway, that's a whole separate story. The point is, the collateral damage here, lots of innocent dwarfs, people who vaguely look like Tyrion or don't even really look like Tyrion, but just have his stature, are getting killed on the off chance that those people can collect the reward. They're taking a huge risk. They're, they're lying to Cersei and committing murder, which of course is the bigger crime just on the off chance that she believes them. And yeah, like they're cutting noses off to do this. And, and Cersei still doesn't like have them punished because she doesn't want anyone to hold back. She's like, well, I don't want anyone to hesitate when they really do see Tyrion. So I don't care how many innocent dwarves die in the cause here. Oof, pretty bad. Arguably even worse because of more people are targeted because of this. 
Rickard Carstar. When Jamie was set free by Catelyn, Rickard offered the hand of his daughter to anyone who recaptured him. And that just led to gangs of roving brigands going around murdering their way through villages looking for him. There were lots of collateral damage. Lots of people died. Lots of completely innocent people. Lots of people who were on the side of Rickard Karstark, on the side of the Tullys and Starks. Those people were getting attacked and assaulted and burned out of their homes on the 0.00001% chance that they had Jamie there. Real bad. Really, really bad. From Wheezy Squeezebox, the... King Dynasty didn't announce who was chosen as the crown prince until after the death of the emperor. Too much risk of assassination. Oh, that's a great way to get around it. Rather than just, it's going to be the oldest. So he's like, well, just kill everyone except the oldest. That'll be the one. Yeah, they wouldn't just pick the oldest. They would have a designated successor in some of these cases. Yeah, I mean, like, the, I mean, like whoever's the crown prince would then choose to assassinate the emperor. Oh, that you're right. That right? too. Yeah, either you're right. You're, you're, right. It's not just the other heir potential heirs. It's the, yeah, not just the other heirs, but the heir itself potentially. I guess I don't know. And sometimes they would have like lots of potential heirs too. They could have like dozens, and, and that way it, it was like the idea of wiping them all out was absurd. Like, there's no way you're going to kill all of them. So (laughs) why even bother trying with any of them? That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Graham Highlander says, clever people can make use of prophecy. Would Varys and or Littlefinger not know of the prophecies? That's a good point. Well, Varys seems to know of some prophecies. He doesn't like to use them because of his anti-magic stance, but he seems aware of them and aware of how they can be used. Littlefinger's a little interesting. He doesn't seem to make use of them at all. He doesn't seem to be involved in magic or supernatural. Maybe one day he will. Maybe he'll, that'll enter his wheelhouse. But something about that doesn't really fit. But maybe he would. Maybe he would. Maybe once Daenerys is in the picture and, and Makoro's in the picture, there might be more talk of prophecy. If winter is like hitting other places hard, if more people witness the others or the undead, it might get more people talking about it. But we might just get to a place where it's still mostly a northern phenomena and people in the south aren't believing it or they just, they're hearing stories and it's hard for them to believe it or accept it. I am very curious. That's a great question. It's, a, it's, it's partly outside the scope of this episode, partly very much in the scope of this episode. But yeah, I, I really do wonder if that's going to change for them. Because yeah, it's true that they haven't done a lot with that. And there's prophecies that are straight gift. Maybe I should have mentioned that as well earlier when we talk about prophecies that are negative, ones that, that do harm to the, the hearer. The knowledge is poisonous. For example, the ghost of Highheart, she was given pretty straightforward predictions that were useful. Makoro's predictions to Victorian, a lot of those were pretty straightforward, useful. Like, hey, if you kill this guy, we'll have wind. Or you're going to find several of your missing ships over here. He gave him that prediction, and that came true. That was part of why Makoro started to get trusted by Victorian, is his, his small-scale predictions came true. That's poison in a sense, because he's winning his trust. And Makoro is not going to turn out good for Victorian in the long run. So that's where the, the gift left by the drowned god in the water there for him, yes, for you, Victorian, is poisonous because Victor- McCourt is not an ally. He's an ally of the person that he's an enemy of. <laughs> Very straightforward in that sense. But nevertheless, some of that advice is, is positive. And from the Ghost of High Art, there is no ulterior motive from her that we know of. Anyway. She's given them just straightforward predictions that seem to be useful. Some of them they didn't understand. Like talking about the... Euron and the crown, the the kraken with a crow on its shoulder, waiting on a bridge in a storm, which was the story of Euron assassinating Balon. That wasn't relevant at all to 
the Brotherhood Without Banners. It wasn't a burden of knowledge for them. It just didn't matter to them. They were like, well, I don't know what the heck that means. That was purely for us, the reader. But they did get information that they needed. I mean, one of the reasons they went to her in the first place was to be like, hey, where's Barrett? <laughs> or where's this person? They were, they were looking around for him at first. So they ask pretty mundane things. So we, we needn't say that prophecy is always bad, but it is the sword without a handle. It is the proverbial risk reward where the risk is usually greater than the reward. And even if it isn't, it probably will be eventually. Okay. Okay. Well, it's time to start wrapping up here. We had, I think, a very good episode. I think that was really fun to talk about this concept. It's more of a theme, more of an idea. Last couple of episodes, we've done a little more of this. It seems like a, maybe a little bit of a new style episode for us. We'll call it like a theme episode, where it's not, it's not a historical deep dive specifically, although it does involve touching on a variety of different times and places. It's not a character study. It certainly studies certain aspects of certain characters. It's not a chapter review or the look at a certain house, but it does involve all those things, bits and pieces. So it's pretty cool. If you like this style of episode, well, let us know. And if you prefer other styles of episode, let us know that too. We've got a lot in our toolbox these days. We've got a growing arsenal of topic styles and approaches we can take with, with the podcast. And we like playing around with different looks. So join the discussion on Discord or Facebook. Those are the main ways. You can also reach out to us on history at gmail.com. You can also hit us up on Twitter at Westeros History there, as long as Twitter still exists. You can you can reach us there. Follow us on TikTok. TikTok as well. We now have that's fairly new, but it does exist. We've gotten involved. There. I actually posted on TikTok during this recording. You know why? Because they have a thing called TikTok Now. Really? Which is like be real, where it's like you have to take a picture and share it within three minutes or you're out of the limit or whatever. So I got the notification that we were li- while we were live. So I took a little video of you speaking disease and mm-hmm. I put it on our, t- our TikTok oh, now. Wow. How about that? So yeah. I'm TikToking without knowing it. Yeah. TikToking around the clock. <laughs> the trivia answer. The traditional three gifts given to the Dosh Kaleen. We have a quote. To reveal the answer, Ashea. The caravans made their way to Vase Dothrak from east and west, not so much to sell to the Dothraki as to trade with each other, Ser Jorah had explained. The riders let them come and go unmolested, so long as they observed the peace of the sacred city, did not profane the mother of mountains or the womb of the world, and honored the crones of the Dosh Kaleen with the traditional gifts of salt, silver, and seed. Here we go. Like I said, they all begin with the same letter, and that letter was S. Salt, silver, and seed. Scott Wartman guessed it. Did he? Good job, Scott. Well played, sir. I thought that one was pretty obscure. I had kind of forgotten about it, but I I stumbled on it when looking throughout all the pages of all the books for things that were gifts, prizes, poisoned, toxic. Yeah, anything along those lines that, that supported this idea, this theme. And that was a good one. So I thought that was nice because it fit in the topic very well, involves gifts. I hope wherever you are, whether you're exchanging gifts with family or have already done so or will later, I hope your gifts are anything but poisoned. (laughs) I hope they're very positive and bring you joy of them and of the people you spend that time with. And if you're not, well, you're here with us. You can listen to us. We're always here for you. We'll be back next week, which happens to be 
New Year's Day. So yes, we'll be, we're doing a stream on, here on Christmas and on New Year's Day. And then we'll have a Daniele Bellelli episode. The yeah, week after and then that. we recorded an episode with our friend Daniele Bellelli of the podcast History on Fire. We've done an episode with him before many years ago. And that will take the place of the live stream on the 8th. You think you'll do it like a premiere? Yeah, we might do like a premiere. That'd be fun. Yeah, uh, yeah it's a good idea. Mm. So keep an eye out for that. It'll be, so we'll still have an episode on Sunday, January 8th, but it won't be live. It will be pre-recorded. It's already been recorded. Shea has been editing it this week. And yeah, so mm-hmm. stick, stay tuned for that. And we'll be back next week with a topic chosen by our patrons. We mentioned a lot of previous episodes in this one off and on. We mentioned Valar Revitas, especially the Victorian chapters and anything with Euron in it. Of course, there's so many examples of Euron's poisons gifts. I'm sure we didn't cover them all. Partly because what counts as a poison gift is very open to interpretation. We talk about the Sworn Sword and the Mystery Knight, both the gift of the Dragon's Egg and the gift of the, the Poison Prize process of winning the Dragon's Egg in the first place and the Poison Prize of Mercy, uh, as Sir Eustace put it. We talk about the Hellhorn, <laughs> one of Euron's gifts, but we have one we have an episode on as well. And of course, many other types of things that you would view as gifts would be present in many of our other episodes. So, enjoy our back catalog if you are so inclined to delve deep into it. Thanks to Nina for her notes. Super invaluable, as always. Had a lot of great takes on what is considered a poison prize, what is a poison gift, and that whole thing. Thank you to those of you supporting us with monthly subscriptions on Patreon or Spotify or on PayPal. Thanks to Joey Townsend and Jesse Koval for the History of Westeros intro music. Thanks to Michael Klarfeld for the video intro as well. And again, happy holidays to everyone. And we hope gift you with a recurring phrase that we love to say at the end of every episode. <laughs> May your holidays be filled with Valar Reredis and Valar Rewatches. <laughs>